So the big question is this, how do investors like us who don't have a PhD in finance earn millions to start investing? How do we grow our bank accounts to build real savings and retirements and yet still have the time to do what we really love? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answer. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Abraham, kind of. Uh, I'm a, I did my undergrad here in math, uh, now I'm a master's student in cybersecurity, I'm doing the cybersecurity master's program. I'm a, it's my eighth year of college. Um, my research is in cryptography, kind of, so I'm like more on the theory-oriented side. And then this club formed, and it's like not a theory club, so I, usually the talks I give are very theory-oriented and very mathematical. So I have to, you know, ask to give a talk about something, and it's well, I have to think about exactly, um, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of allergic to programming. So, uh, so this is a talk on something that I've been collecting notes on for several months now, and then I had a reason to use them. So this is something I've been researching for a while. There's nothing new in this talk that isn't already on the internet, but it's just collecting documents and sourcing things. So this is a talk on the NSA and cryptography. And so it's really uh, sort of a drama, and it's about uh, bureaucracy. So further begin, are there any questions, comments? OK, good. So uh, why is cybersecurity important? It's a simple, it's sort of maybe too simple of a question, but I think it's good to come back to the axioms. So it's not a rhetorical question. Someone, maybe if they're not eating pizza, they can answer. Someone give me a reason. Someone give me a reason why cybersecurity is important. Protect your data on the internet. Okay, that's a pretty good reason. Are there any more reasons? Privacy and authentication. Privacy and authentication. That's also a good reason. Um, so I asked this question because I knew what the answers are, and you and you know I'm looking for answers like you know you can protect your bank account, and you can buy things on Amazon and, and things. But the real answer why cybersecurity is important is because you can die, right? So these are three journalists, and they have three different names in three different languages, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce them any name correctly. This first one is Anna Politkovskaya. The second one, so she's Russian. The second one is Maltese from a tiny island of the speck next to Sicily in the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Her name is Daphne Karuna Galizia. And this third one is uh, Jamal Kasogi. He's Saad. Uh, he was in the news more recently. And I bring these three up for uh, a few reasons. One is they're all dead. So uh, Anna Potlitskovaya, I'll just call her Anna, she was shot twice in the head uh, outside of uh, her home on the way home at night. Uh, it was a contract killing, and this was in 2006. So this is the elevator. Daphne, she was the uh, journalist, and she uh, was the main uh, journalist behind the Panama Papers, and they put a car bomb on her Peugeot, and now she's dead. And her son was like, wow, I found pieces of my mother 80 meters from the car. And then Jamal Kasagogi, so this guy is more recently in the news. I'm sure you, have you guys heard of this guy compared to the other two maybe? Okay, it's 2018, it's not that old. So this is Jamal Kasagogi, he was a Washington Post columnist. He was uh, an outspoken critic of uh, Saudi Arabia. And so this is him walking into the Turkish embassy, I think in 2018 or 2019, I don't remember, October, and then this, is a body double leaving uh, the embassy, the, Turkey, the Saudi Arabian embassy in Turkey, uh, a few hours later. 
So these two people look the same, but if you take a closer look, what is the difference? Can you spot a difference between these two? Shoes. The shoes. Yeah, immediately. You can see the shoes. So they took his clothes and uh, they had the, so So well, I have some notes here because it's hard to remember. So a 15-man team arrived by a private plane a few hours before. Um, they used a bone saw and they cut him into pieces while he was still alive. They videotaped it. His wife was waiting in the car. He was just doing some administrative paperwork. Um, then they dissolved his body in acid. There was a seven-minute recording from his Apple Watch of him being hacked alive. Right. So then they had this body double walk around the block on the security cameras. But then he walked. The body double like walked back into the embassy. So like nobody believed it. Right. It's obvious. And I mean, even without the shoes, I mean, these guys don't really look that alike. Um, so the reason I bring up these three journalists is not only are they dead, but they were all hacked before they died. So Anna, she, uh, her email was hacked over a year by the Russian, whatever the new uh, three-letter acronym of the KGB is. Anna, uh, she was hacked a few weeks before she died. Tried to, they were trying to look for the sources of her reports because, you know, journalists have like anonymous sources instead. And Jamal Kosogogi, so this one is uh, more interesting. There was an Israeli firm called NSO, and they sold the Saudi Arabians uh, malware called Pegasus. And Pegasus was injected into his phone, his backup phone, his wife's phone, his other wife's phone. So he had two wives. That's like a detail glossed over in all the reports of this. Um, and his, the one, uh, his backup friend in Turkey. So they were tracking his, move, his every move and everything before this thing. So these three journalists were hacked before they died. Um, but it, security, so that means, okay, security is important. You need to protect yourself. Maybe these people might not have been dead. But we can also attribute um, those responsible also through hacking. So uh, she died, Anna, the first one, the Russian, she died in 2006. But in the Snowden revelations in 2013, we learned that the NSA hacked Russian hackers who hacked her, so they were able to attribute the hacking to the Russians. So the NSA, that's another reason we have belief about you know Russia hacking election, whatever, is the NSA, when they do hack Russia, they don't just hack random Russians, they hack the Russian hackers, right? So that makes them kind of good. Uh, same thing with uh, Jamal Kasagogi is they had some sort of signal intelligence. They, had a, they were able to have some private recording from Mohammed bin Salman that he directly ordered the um, killing. And so that could only have been uh, obtained through uh, some sort of hacking like this, right? These things are usually not disclosed because if you tell someone they're hacked, they change channels, they, you know, they burn computers or whatever, right? After the Snowden revelation, some departments in Russia switched to typewriters, um, which, I mean, it, it works, right? So, and then here's a photo of, uh, so this is Jamal Kasagogi's son, and he is accepting a deal here from Mohammed bin Salman. This is the guy who ordered his father's death. And he is not allowed to leave the country, but he's going to pay him $10,000 a month. So, and he has to forgive him. It's all like a, public, a publicity thing, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, security is both an offense and a defensive thing. You want to hack everyone else, but protect yourself, right? The, it would be a great world if the NSA could listen onto every phone call, because then maybe they would prevent some murder. But maybe they would also cause some murder. I don't know. Uh, a lot of bugs and a lot of this stuff is at the implementation level. Software is incorrectly implemented, memory safety issues, all kinds of things. You know, hackers are hackers. It's, it's not like the movies. It's a lot more boring. Um, 
but there, bugs never, almost never happen at the cryptography level. But this is a talk about cryptography. I'm a cryptographer. Taking some security courses, it's hard and it's boring. I care more about the math. So this is uh, the only part of this I can speak to. Um, so I'm going to talk about some case studies of the NSA uh, with uh, cryptography. So this is the National Security Association, National Security Agency. Um, that's their logo. It's pretty generic. Doesn't tell you anything at all about uh, the thing. The key is sort of a maybe a boring symbol, but you can think of that sort of secretive, right, or whatever. Um, so this is the NSA headquarters. It's in Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, there's it's classified, but there's between 33 and 40,000 employees. Uh, this building uses the most electricity in the entire state of Maryland, and it's, uh, pretty, uh, it's estimated that's for all the data processing they have to do. This building is so big that they have their own police force, and it has a K-9 unit. The budget of the NSA is uh, $11 billion, and I'm going to be talking about a project they do, which has a budget of roughly $800 million, and that's a lot of money. Um, so here's some other things the NSA do, does before I get into it. So they maintain two open source projects, SE Linux and Gidra. SE Linux, I don't know, is, who, does anyone know what SE Linux is? It's, it, it comes default on Fedora. It's basically annoying if you try and run a program as a user you're not supposed to. It does all the sandboxing, sort of. It's a, a paradigm of permissions for a Linux system. Does anyone know what Gidra is? OK, I'm taking a hacking class this semester. Gidra is a static analysis tool. It's incredibly useful. And it's, it, it's sort of terrible software. The, the user interface is written in Java. The back end is written in C++, and the scripting is done in Python. So everything is sort of pasted together and barely held together. But it's pretty good. The algorithm stuff, it works pretty well. A binary. So like you can take a binary, which is assembly level code, and if it's good enough, it can sort of optimize it back to a high level C-like language. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's it, it's powerful stuff. It's just click and click and click and and, and then there's the source code. It's like wow. Um, there's an APT called Equation Group. Uh, so, Casperky uh, Labs in 2015. You know they identify malware. They identify APTs. APT stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. So that's like an, a hacking group, a thing, an organization that does a thing, and they identify malware to certain APTs. So in 2015, they came out with a report that they think the NSA was running an uh, APT called Equation Group, and they attributed that name to them because their um, the malware that they run happens to align with uh, United States interests, and that it uses it has distinctive and heavily use of cryptography, which is something unique in malware. Most security people don't care about crypto; they like that's someone else's problem usually. But um, in the Equation Group's malware, they're sort of interchangeable. They also run something called the NSA Codebreaker Challenge. I have no idea what that is, but uh, it's like an assignment in my class later. So maybe I'm going to find out what that is. Um, OK, so this is a talk mostly about what's called Project Bull Run. It has $800 million in United States funding. So this is uh, part of the, one of the documents with Sonos leaks that describes the thing. So first off, how to read uh, classified documents. The top will tell you three codes. So it says TS, top secret, SI, which is an older code, which stands for secret information and then a rel, which rel will say who it's related to. So rel is related to USA and FV. I don't know what that is. Um, and then each line of a classified document will tell you if this line can be requested via FOIA, like a Freedom of Information Act request, or if it's not allowed. So for example, U stands for unclassified. For office use only is what F-O-U-O means, F-O-U-O. And you know, to get a for office use uh, only classification, is, that's usually like the boring stuff. 
I have a four office use uh, classification, for example, to work on a government project. It's boring. It's like, there's nothing like secret and spooky about it. It's just, it's just material that's not done yet. It eventually became open source. Uh, so here's, I'm going to read you what the description of Project Bull Run. Project Bull Run deals with NSA's abilities to defeat encryption using specific network communication technologies. Bull Run involves multiple sources, all of which are extremely sensitive. They include CNE, interdiction industry relationships, collaboration with other IC entities, and advanced mathematical techniques. Several of these ECIs apply to specific sources, methods, and techno uh, techniques involved. Because of the multiple sources involved in Bull Run's activities, capabilities against the technology does not necessarily equate to decryption. And then I have another thing here. So TS, SI, and F means top secret, secret information, no foreign. So that means this document should not leave the United States. The SIGINT enabling project, so SIGINT is signal intelligence, uh, actively engages the US and foreign IT industries covertly to covertly influence and overtly leverage their commercial products designs. These design changes make systems in question exploitable through SIGINT collection, so endpoint, midpoint, etc., with foreknowledge of the modification. To the consumer and other adversaries, however, the system security may remains intact. In this way, SIGINT enables approaches to use commercial technology and insight to manage increasing costs, blah, blah. Okay. The important sentence here is, to the consumer and other adversaries, however, the system security remains intact. So that means if you're the customer, if you're the adversary, you don't think anything's wrong, but they can still monitor your information. And so that's important. A compromised channel is actually far worse than an open channel. If you have an open channel, you can say, let's not discuss this here. Let's take it into the back room. If you have a covert channel, if you have a, if you have a broken channel and you believe it's secret, that's worse because you'll spill the information. That's what the NSA knows. You'll tell where 9-11-2 is going to happen or whatever, right? That's not going to be happening uh, in, in the open. So just a brief history of the NSA. The NSA was founded in 1952. In 1955, there was this company called Crypto AG. They were a Swiss company, maybe a Finnish company. They built these cipher machines, which are sort of have you guys heard of the Enigma machine, Alan Turing? So that's sort of, huh? Yeah, that's sort of what this looks like. So um, this is sort of 1955 on. Uh, so this company was built, this is like a, an advancement of the Enigma machine in a, in a way. Uh, this company, CryptoG, was selling these machines to companies. And the NSA comes to them three years after being founded and says, hey, can you put a backdoor in for us? And they said, absolutely, sure. I don't care. So they put a backdoor in. It was easy as that. There was no influence that had to happen. They put the back door in. Um, so some other information about uh, these machines. So there's some numbers of which, which countries bought them. And apparently every country bought at least a few. So for example, Egypt bought 50. Uh, Colombia in South America bought about, about 140, which is like, I don't know what you can do with 147 machines. But then the United Kingdom only bought two. So if you have to guess, what does that tell you? Just from the numbers as an estimation. That's a good guess. I think, actually, I think that's as good as my guess. My guess was going to be if you buy 50 of them, that means you're going to use them. If you buy two, that means you're just going to study them. You're going to study how they break. And the UK already, at this point, had a history of breaking cipher machines with the whole, it's in a movie and whatever, right? Turing and the, I don't know. Um, so that was 1950s until, you know, people stopped using, you can see the evolution of technology gets to radio. This is called Project Echelon, and this was just them spying on open radio waves. People are commuting. Uh, there's still no real public encryption being used in any technology. So, and this was controversial at one point because they were spying on senators, like the federal branch spying on what the legislative branch is doing. And 
So in these little orbs are all satellite dishes, but you can't see them. You can't see which way they're pointing because they have, they built like an orb around them. It's kind of a cool, it looks like a mushroom. I think it's, it's kind of cute. So that was the 80s. Then uh, public key encryption was invented like 70s. Computers weren't really good then. It's, they were building up to the 90s. So at this point, crypto is classified as munitions. So crypto, I mean cryptography, cryptographic, crypto systems, you know, public encryption, cipher, ciphers, whatever. It's, class, it's classified as a material of war. So it falls under the same jurisdiction as like bombs and stuff. So strong crypto is banned from export. So the key size, you can't export a block cipher more than 40 bits. Now, what a crypto system is today is more ambiguous because we have a great diversity of thought and things, people are creative. But back then, it just meant a block cipher. Um, but it was sort of, even then, uh, worded quite vague. So OpenBSD, has anyone heard of OpenBSD? Yeah, people know of it. People, no one uses it, but people have heard of it. It's those guys over there. Which might be based on. Yeah, it, it, there's something like that. Anyway, they develop OpenSSH. If you guys use SSH, they're like the maintainers of OpenSSH. You cannot submit a pull request to OpenSSH if you're in the United States, uh, even today. So Netscape was like the Firefox predecessors. They went on to found Firefox. Netscape at the time had two versions of SSL. So there was a US version, which had 512 bits. So you guys know how SSL and TLS work? I'm trying to make a handshake with a website. So first I do like a Diffie-Hellman key exchange, and we exchange some public information. Then I establish a shared secret key. And then I use symmetric encryption for the shared secret key. So the shared secret, symmetric encryption is far faster than asymmetric encryption. So this is faster than just doing all asymmetric. What's Diffie-Hellman? Diffie-Hellman is a key exchange protocol where we can sort of, in public, to any listeners, uh, do this kind of math, and then we both share the same value. But the value itself was not transferred over the thing. I don't feel like, I don't feel like writing it. Is that okay? <laughs> I can write it. So G is public, and uh, X and Y are generated by uh, the people. Like, so I'm Alice, and this guy is Bob, and we each secretly generate X and Y, and X and Y is not public, but G is a public information. So then I'm going to compute G to the X, and I'm going to send that to Bob, and then they're going to compute G to the Y, uh, and send that to me, and then I'm going to compute G to the Y uh, to the X, and then they're going to compute G to the X to the Y. So now we both share the same values. We both share g to the x, y, and right, these are commutative. But then uh, the values that were sent over the wire are what? They're going to be g to the x, g to the y, and g. So the public information given g to the x, g to the y, and g, you cannot learn x and y. Think, well, I take the log. Well, it's a discrete log. So you guys heard of discrete log? Discrete log properly? It's a hardness assumption. We can't uh, invert a logarithm if it's in a uh, finite rate. Right, so multiplication and exponentiation are expensive. So we use like an a, uh, like a block cipher, so which is just shifts, additions, and things like that. So it's very, it's very fast. Um, this is a clipper chip. So this was a chip the NSA designed, and they tried to push it on telecom communications to export this chip to countries. It's backdoored. There's like a bug in it. It allows the NSA to spy on anyone who uses this chip. Problem was that nobody really cared about encrypting phones at the time. It's 95 still. People don't care about encrypting anything. And it was expensive, so the... Telecom companies didn't really want to export it because it cost them money to put an encryption in a phone that was unencrypted anyway. But then this was like a big public fiasco. So these are two posters uh, from Ronald Rivest. These were from his office. And this is from the company RSA, which is his acronyms, RSNA. Um, not just his, he's just the R. But uh, so it's a sync clipper, and there's this like 
propaganda effort they did to get, let the media know about, you know, don't backdoor our encryption. It was a big, a big, uh, it's a, it was a 90s thing, we'll see. Um, here's some case law that happened that, you know, sort of established where we are today, and I'm thankful. Junger versus Daly, so Junger was a professor. He couldn't accept non-U.S. students into his class on computer law. Right, so if you're an international student, you couldn't go join his class, and he sued the United States, and he won. Bernstein versus the United States, and he develops uh, block cipher. Bernstein, will, his name will come up about 10 more times in this lecture. But he developed a, a thing, and he wasn't allowed to publish information on it, and he said that violated my free speech. Uh, and, he, and he won. Apple, in the FBI uh, versus Apple case, cited this. You know, the, Apple couldn't be forced to put a backdoor in because it violated their free speech. So they cited this case. Zimmerman published PGP. So PGP, you guys ever use PGP keys? Heard of PGP? Maybe? Okay, it's basically like uh, a software level of all these cryptographic algorithms. So if I have a PGP key and like the eighth bit is 0x5, that means my key is 4096 RSA. It's basically a, a technical, real C implementation of all these algorithms together. That's all, all it is. So. He was not allowed to publish it, obviously, because it was more than 50 bit, 40 bits of cryptographic information, so we put it in a book. He printed it in the MIT press, and then he shipped the book to Iran. Uh, you can't ban the export of a book, so that's how he got around it. Um, it's, still Ill it's still illegal today to sh export some cryptographic hardware. People don't care enough about cryptographic hardware to fight over it. What does that like, qualify under? Like, do ledgers and trezors and stuff? Like, clearly they don't ah, it's up to a judge. These people who write the laws don't know what these things are. True. So, you know what? It might be. It might. Those might qualify. But they just no one cares enough. To yeah, them. yeah. It's 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 interesting. And well, to that extent, every Intel chip would qualify. They all have a secure enclave. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about the first case. Uh, but the end. This is like the main point of my talk. So there was an algorithm called dual EC, and I'm going to explain in detail what this was. Dual, so, but there's a paper by Bernstein and, and Tanya Lange, and they sort of cover a huge breadth of information, and most of my talk comes from their paper. Uh, so this is the first paragraph. Dual EC is a pseudo-random number generator. Soon after its publication, it was criticized by experts for its poor design. It's a thousand times slower than alternatives. The numbers it produces are out, as output are biased, flunking the most basic requirement for pseudo-random number generator. And most importantly, it's mathematically guaranteed to have a skeleton key that makes the output entirely predictable to anyone in possession of the key. An honest designer would not have kept the key, but a pseudo-random number generator should not have scaled the key in the first place. So there's a lot of words there. Uh, you guys know how a skeleton key works for a normal lock. A skeleton key is a, is a, is a, is a key that'll open any lock. It's like the locksmith makes it for himself, right? And it, it comes to that because it it's pretty bare. It looks kind of like a skeleton. Uh, Pseudo-random number generator, I'll talk about, about that in depth. And then bias. So uh, uh, the bias of a random number generator is how different it is from something that's truly random instead of pseudo-random. So, so let's talk about dual EC, and the EC stands for elliptic curve. So we're going to talk about some math. You guys remember, does, you guys remember calculus? You guys remember what derivative is? I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, so there's a, so you define a function over a finite field of some form y squared equals uh, x cubed plus ax plus b, and this is called Weierstrass form on an elliptic uh, an elliptic curve. There are other forms. You also count this point at infinity. So you take the you take all the points on this curve and then you add in a point. You say this is the point at infinity. It's a special point, and that'll make sense uh, later. So these are two curves. These are two elliptic curves. So that's y squared equals three uh, x 
cubed minus x, and that's what that looks like. And then I did uh, y squared equals x cubed minus x plus 1. So I added a 1, and these look very different curves. But if you were to interpolate between uh, plus 0 and plus 1, you would interpolate between these two curves. So it, they have some very nice properties here. You can sort of see how maybe it would deform into the other, right? Um, yes. So an elliptic curve. So you take two points in the curve, PQ, and you define an addition. So we're defining sort of an algebraic structure on uh, a curve. We define PQ as minus R, where PQR are the unique points on the same line. So basically, every line, that, every straight line that intersects these curves will intersect in three points, if it intersects in two. Right? Try and imagine that. Well, I'll just do it here for you. So if you take two points, so take P and Q, you take R, which is the third unique point on that line, and then you flip it. So down there is P plus Q. Any questions so far? This is big. This is really important. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you have to go with it as long as you have to I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to ignore the hard details. But yes. Yes, I do. Um, pop quiz. What is P plus P? So I define two unique points, and I add, then I do this. What is P plus P if I add two points together? You can make a guess, even. I just want to hear people talk. This is why I brought up if you guys remember calculus. There's, a, there's an analogy you can make in calculus. P plus P. So I'm asking you to add the point to itself. 2P. 2P. It is 2P. But what is what is that if you were to put plot it on the curve? So it's cl it's closed. Basically, that's going to be another point on the curve. So what where what point would that be though? You have an answer? Yes. Okay. You guys remember calculus? The slope of the ten the 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 if you take the limit of a point going to approaching another point, the slope of the secant line approaches the tangent. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, did you guys not remember that? Okay. It makes sense though. Okay. The point, uh, if you add P to itself, you have a tangent line instead of a secant line. So it intersects the curve in exactly one other point. Then you take the flip of that. Does that make sense? Take the limit of Q as it approaches P, slide it around the curve. The tangent line is going to be... the. Tangent line is going to approach me. But uh, this, if, you, if you were to draw a tangent line at P, ah, that's why we have a point in infinity. It's a gotcha. Yeah, it's the point in infinity in that case. So, If you took P approach Q, though, the other point would probably be somewhere in between P and Q. right? Oh, actually, Well, then you have to flip it, actually. That's an important step. Okay, now what is KP? What is an integer K times, times a point P? If I explain up to curves, I think everyone gets confused. If you multiply something by a number, what are you doing? You're adding it to itself times. So if you so kp is just p add to itself k times. Okay. So that's the pop quiz. P plus p. That's the secant line. Whatever. Uh, kp is the integer integer k. You add it to itself k times. Okay. So now let's talk about uh, ECDLP. ECDLP is a so cryptography is based classical cryptography at least is based on these hardness assumptions. We assume something is impossible on a classical computer. Or it can only it takes an exponential time algorithm on a classical computer. So ECDLP is one of these assumptions. Integer factorization we believe is hard on a classical computer. So if I give you two points P and Q, and I ask you to find K such that Q equals KP, 
We believe this is hard. We believe no classical algorithm works for this. And this is an assumption. So all cryptography is relying on assumptions. RSA assumption, integer factorization assumption. I don't know. Have you guys taken algorithms? Do you cover that in algorithms? I don't know. Okay. Um, that's okay. You can believe me that this is hard. Maybe. Com computing it to begin with is kind of tricky. So if I give you Q and P, uh, P and Q, the only algorithm, if you ask you to program this, maybe the only algorithm you could think of would be like a search algorithm. And that's not going to have good run time. There's no, al there's no tricks you can do. There's no like quadratic formula. I'm missing all the details, obviously. I'm just giving you the, the, the thing. Okay, what is a random number generator? Okay, so true randomness is actually really expensive. And usually when you have it, you don't want it. Your program is bugging out or something, right? So you, it's a very rare resource to have true randomness. So true randomness, it comes from uh, the environment. It comes from sources like your mouse movement, the sensor in your mouse. It comes from your temperature. It comes sometimes from your microphone, your speaker. You know, there's internal, there's noise, there's static electricity. There's, the Intel chip is picking up all this, it's XORing it together, and it's saying this is the entropy source. You guys have heard of DevURandom on a Linux system? So DevRandom is, um, DevURandom is unrestricted. So it'll, so the, uh, the kernel is collecting entropy into a pool, and then it spits the entropy out until the pool is empty. DevURandom is unrestricted, so it'll just keep spitting out. Even if the pool is empty, it'll keep giving you random numbers, and it'll give you biased random numbers. But dev random will give you entropy until the pool is empty. So the random numbers that are coming, that are coming out of dev random are better than the numbers coming out of dev random, especially for cryptographic applications. We need really good random numbers. All the protocols rely on randomness. Sometimes you can use quantum stuff. You've seen like a Geiger counter move towards something, right? Right. Uh, the physics, or the way that it works, it relies on the, the beta particles decaying off that thing at a uniformly random rate, not some pseudo-uniformly random or anything, it has to be truly random. Um, so what's the idea here is we use, a small, we use a small bit of true randomness to seed fake randomness. So it's called CSPRNG, which is a lot of letters, you can ignore half of them. Uh, cryptographically secure pseudo, which is spelled with a P but should be with an S, pseudo-random number generator. So what that means is we just extend it. Um, you can think of this like a Minecraft seed, right? You guys use it. Now, that's a question that should be easy. You guys heard of Minecraft, <laughs> right? Okay. So basically, the Minecraft seed is, a, is, is the true randomness, and the Minecraft world is the pseudo-randomness. The Minecraft seed is very small, but it's somehow a unique identifier for the entire world, right? The, the world is, I think it's infinite, right? I'm actually not sure. I haven't tried walking to the end, but the seed is somehow unique enough to identify the whole thing. So the seed is generated randomly, and then the world is generated pseudo-randomly. Uh, you use a seed, we will call it S0, from a true random number generator, and we use it to seed a pseudo-random number generator, uh, like Minecraft. Okay. So here's, here's the normal construction of a pseudo-random number generator. Uh, so S0 is, a, is true randomness. Then we have uh, a function that maps it to what's called an internal state S1. Then from the internal state, we take another function and we call R1. So I say, give me a random number, it gives me R1. Well, I say, give me another random number, it's going to compute S2 internally, and then it's going to give me R2. So R2 is the public values, and S2 is the secret internal state. If you could learn this internal state, you could notice that because G, F, and G are computable, you can compute all future random numbers, right? That's a problem. We want, if you're given some of the random numbers, we don't want any of the random numbers to be predictable. Then they're not random, then they're deterministic, right? So, any questions so far? Am I going too fast? 
Yes. Yes. So you think there's two perspectives. One is you're the one producing the random numbers, so you know the you know the internal states s, and you know you're giving r to the client, and the client only sees the random numbers, but they're not supposed to learn anything else. They're only supposed to see the random numbers. Okay. So we have some properties called forward and backward secrecy. So given the random number, it's hard to go back to its internal state. So it's a hardness assumption. G is hard to invert, basically. Uh, and so backward secrecy, and these are just like named arbitrarily, because forward secrecy, you're trying to go backwards, and then backward secrecy, you're trying to go right. Doesn't mean any, no, you're trying to go, you're trying to go left. So it doesn't, oh, what the heck? Yeah, so given SI, so you're given in the internal state of the future, no, you're given the internal state, you're trying to learn, you can't learn the internal state of the past. Right, but given an internal state, you can learn all the internal states of the future. You just compute F, compute F, compute F. So pop quiz, what's an easy way to achieve hardness with these functions? What kind of functions do you know are hard to invert? Hash function, yeah. So this is really easily, very easy to achieve with a hash function. You guys know what hash function is? You Shaw, MD5 maybe even? Very important, very important, useful, useful things. So remember you're usually just hash functions, makes everything easy. Right, the, these are cryptographically designed primitives that make it impossible, not impossible, but probabilistically infeasible to invert. Um, so let's talk about what dual EC is. So we're gonna combine, you just learned two new topics, uh, elliptic curves and random number generators. So we're gonna combine those. Define these parameters, okay? P, I'm not gonna read any of this. P, R, B, the X coordinate of P, the X coordinate of Y, the X coordinate of Q, and the X coordinate of Y, uh, of the Y coordinate of Q. So those are the values, okay? And that's the function. So A is just three, and then B is whatever that is, and P is a prime, prime number. Uh, so these values are fixed and they're hard-coded. The dual EC random number generator is, is as follows. So we take S0 to randomness, we multiply S0 by P, and then we take the x-coordinate. So x of S0P means multiply P, add P to itself S0 times, then you take the x-coordinate. Okay, that's how you get the next internal state. To get the random number from that internal state, you take point Q, and then you take the x-coordinate. So you take add Q to itself S1 times, take the x-coordinate, and then you cut off a few bits. Okay. So these appear at least to have the property forward and backward secrecy. Is so it important to cut off those bits? Yes. So. Um, Try guessing the inverse of a hash with only half the bits. It should be just as hard. It should be, but what if this is a funny hash function because you care about speed more than security? Yeah, so sometimes they cut off the bits. Oh, and also if you, if you want more random numbers that are in a block than are fixed bit size, you just concatenate them. Um, it, appears to have, it appears to have forward and backward secrecy. I told you ECDLP, assume it's hard. Then that implies that this random number generator should have forward and backward secrecy. So you're given SI, and you're given the x coordinate. So you're given the x coordinate of P of SIP, and you're given P, and you're asked to find SI. That's ECDLP. So that you can't do it. Don't even try. It. Just give up. And for uh, backward secrecy or whatever that one what is, I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, so it's implied that these are actually one-way functions from ECDLP. But 
there's a bug. So uh, it was really satisfying to find this bug. So let's take 30 seconds and actually think about there's a bug in this code. Uh, let's see if you can find it. Let's give, uh, give it a non-trivial amount of time to think about it. It's, I think if you do find it, it's very satisfying. And if you know the answer, don't tell anyone. I mean, if you know the answer, maybe if you've seen this before. Yes? Uh, so the addition of two points is you uh, recall you take the, the line intersecting the elliptic curve and over the finite field, and then you take the third point of the triple, and then you, yeah. So you take, so add p plus q. P plus q is minus r, which is going to be the flip of that. Yeah. OK. So no one asked me about this slide. You guys just took that as, as uh, acceptable. You guys think that's OK. Uh, there's some questions you should have. What, like, like what, are every, what does everything on that slide mean? Uh, that's the bug, essentially. So uh, how are these numbers generated? You just kind of like, uh, like, you kind of like trust it, right? So maybe I could work it out. So what if they were generated in a funny way, in a, like a bad guy made these numbers up? So suppose P and Q are funny. Suppose there exists a K. Uh, such that p equals kq. Whoever made p and q could know this k. They didn't tell you how they made p and q. So now let's just do some math. What is k times r1? k times r1, well, r1 is x of s1q. Uh, what is x of s1q? Well, we can bring that k inside. Actually, I made a mistake here. I brought them both inside. I, I swapped them. I didn't mean to do that. It doesn't matter. So I, you take s1. Uh, you can bring s1 out and put the k inside. It's just sort of or you can do that with constants. So what is x of, uh, what is kq? Well, kq is written literally right there is p. So now we have the x, s1 times the x coordinate of p. Well, we can bring the s1 back inside because I made a mistake. I should have just left it inside. And we, now we have the x coordinate of s1p, which is what? s2. So if I knew this secret k, I can know a future uh, internal state. Um, they shouldn't be known. Like, I mean, you can, so, so, so the x-coordinate is just like a, it's like a hash function of the elliptic curve, sort of. Like, you're, you're, you, you know q, and you know, um, r1q, so, which is going to be s1q, but you shouldn't be able to go back to s1 by ECDLP. Okay. So this appears to not violate forward and backward secrecy. You're not going up, and you're not going left. That's okay. You just go diagonally. So, you, given k, you learn s2. Sure, you don't learn s1, but that's okay. Who cares? You have now learned all the future randomness generated. So, this is an insecure uh, random number generator. Can you go back slide? Yes. How does the x coordinate of s1p equal s2? Oh, because that's, okay, yeah. S2 yeah. equals x1. No, no, it's not trivial. You just have to look at the table. Yeah. S2 equals x1. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a forward, like computing it forward. Um, yeah, so this is a, this is a backward number, random number generator. Um, 
constants show up all the time in cryptography, okay? Like, um, usually to avoid some specific attacks. For example, if you have a, if you choose a group which is not prime, then your hardness problem reduces to the smallest divisor, the smallest integer divisor, which if it's two, then it's easy. So you, but what's the smallest integer divisor of uh, prime besides one? It's gonna be prime. So you're, you don't reduce the problem at all. So primes show up all the time in crypto. Uh, yeah, it's called a Pollock-Helming attack. You can sort of like loop around. Eventually, you'll get it. It's still exponential time, but then you don't. You're not reducing it to a smaller factor. Constant. Sometimes you choose constants because they fit nice into an x86 computer, and you're like actually caring about registers and stuff. People choose these constants. There's a curve called 25519. It's designed by Daniel Bernstein, and he chose it because it actually is well optimized somehow for the way an Intel computer works with their 64-bit registers and all that. It, it happens to just be nice. Um, so who chose these points and why? This is from the technical specifi specification of dual EC and four other random number, three other random number generators. Uh, this is from the section, this is page 85. So constant, dual EC, DRGB, I don't remember what DRGB is, but it doesn't matter, uh, requires the specification of an elliptic curve and two points of an elliptic curve. One of the following misapproved curves with associated points shall be used in applications requiring certification of FIPS 140-2. So if you want certification of your random number generator, you have to use those points. You cannot choose your own points. Later on, they added this section, 2007-ish. Uh, so this was published maybe 2003, 2004. Uh, the security of DLEC requires that the points P and Q be pop, plop, properly generated. To avoid potentially weak points, the points specified in appendix A-1 8.1 should be used. And then they give some, you know, you have to generate them, how, how you would generate them. But you won't get certification if you choose your own P and Q. Uh, so there's these two papers, 1994, so Adam Young and Moti Young. What's funny, two things are funny here. One, uh, they're both named Young, and I think their both names were not originally in English. They were both probably in Hebrew and then anglicized, and they anglicized them differently. And because in computer science, the first co-author is alphabetical, and they both happen to have names that end with Y, they chose the first author to be Young with an O, because O comes before U. So that's why Moti Young is the second author of these papers. Second is these are both PhD students of Zvi Galil. Do you guys know who Zvi is? Wow, he was the dean here for 10 years. He's my professor, he teaches automata. Is anyone from my automata class? Is anyone taking 4510 right now? Is anyone previously taking 4510? <laughs> Wow, you guys are babies. This is my eighth year of college. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, anyway, also this is the, the bottom paper is a wrong paper, but I just left it in the screenshot. There was like four papers, and this one was like one of the later ones. It doesn't matter. They were published in big, big journals, Crypto, uh, which actually happened like three weeks ago, and but 1994 Crypto, and then EuroCrypt, which is also a big one. That happens in March. Um, so here's the conspiracy. The NSA gives a guy named John Kelsey dual EC to include into report NIST SP800 whatever and ANSI X9882. Uh, these reports were sort of almost copies of each other. They happened in dual. They're called different names. As a fourth CRSP, so they're trying. The NIST is a National Institutes of Standards and Technology, not Science and Technology. Standards and Technology. They're boring people. They, they're bureaucrats. They try and standardize things. What is a pseudorandom number generator? What is the definition? What do you need to be secure? You have to follow the standard, and it's, they put out. 100 page PDFs all the time. Boring stuff. So the NSA says, hey, include this in uh, your thing. He's been working at um, NIST for a year at this point. So any questions people have, and these are public comments. People, you can even right now go and comment on some NIST standardization processes. They might not take your word seriously. 
you know, but it's mostly for industry people and professors. Uh, so he lets them respond to it on their behalf. Uh, so here's an example of the ICO, ISO, which is the International Standards, Standards Organizations, another set of bureaucrats, and they're even more annoying because they're international. And here's an example of like a, a 60 page document of what they consider a standard cup of tea. So, um, uh, and by the way, if you wanted to have the official version of this document, you have to pay $16. So I just pirated it. Wait to an accuracy of plus or two minus a massage required. Whatever, man, I don't care. But have you guys seen Futurama? You guys, you guys know this guy, uh, Hermes Conrad Futurama? He's a bureaucrat. He takes pride in making people wait in line. This, this episode, he's a joke. He makes four people stamp some piece of paper that doesn't matter. And he's like disheveled and stuff. He's a level 38 bureaucrat, so paperwork needs to be signed off of someone higher than him. He loves stamping paperwork and whatever. These guys are boring, okay? Um, so here's one of the public comments. So the ISO is trying to standardize a random number generator, 2004, 2005. And here's a public comment the USA does. Uh, so first thing you note, whole document. That's usually uncommon. People don't just say whole document. I would like to comment on the whole document. <laughs> it's 200 pages. I want to comment on the whole thing. Nobody does that. They say, they say I would change line 82 of paragraph 13 from could to shall. That's what a comment is supposed to be, okay? And the emails are there. Here's the thing. The US national body is reviewed, blah, blah, blah. We feel this document is lacking sufficient depth in many areas and simply is not developed <laughs> enough to be an ISO standard, which encompasses both non-deterministic and deterministic random bit generation. We do feel that ANSI X892, 898.9, X982, random bit generation standards has worked as much further developed and should be used as the basis for the ISO standard. And the best of they're saying, we rewrote it to look like an ISO format. We've We've done the, you know, it has to have 12 point font and whatever, you know, nerds. Um, so, here's a quote from the NYT after the Snowden leaks. The NSA wrote the standard and aggressively pushed it on the international group, privately calling the effort to challenge infinite. So the NSA gives NIST this random number generator. John Kelsey puts it in a report. Then they take, now that it's in an official report by NIST, not the NSA, they take the report from NIST and give it to ISO. And then ISO, they're like, hey, you want this report? It's already done, maybe. You'd like it? It's good. Here, you go take it. And then that's less work for the bureaucrats. They're like, wow, they already standardized everything. It looks good enough for me. So they take it. And now uh, dual EC is an international standard, including those uh, points P and Q. So NSA generates those points P and Q. They have a secret K. And now this is an international standard. So now it's an international standard. Uh, public libraries start, like software libraries, start implementing the public standards, right? 2004, NSA pays the RSA security company uh, $10 million to use dual EC as the standard CSPNG and RSA. So RSA BSafe was a cryptographic library uh, written in, I don't remember, but uh, it's 2004, so it couldn't have been anything cool. Maybe it was Java. And now RSA is using the backdoor random number generator. Uh, RSA at this time was worth $2 billion. Uh, so $10 million is kind of like nothing, I think. I don't want to do the math. That's, um, uh, whatever. And, you know, a security company only has one trust. It's, they have one product, and that's safety and trust. And, you know, if you backdoor your customers, no one's going to use anymore. Uh, so to get to tips of uh, 148 to 2 validation, you have to use those points, P and Q. So here's an internal memo, not an internal memo. This is a working document. For an, uh, an extension to uh, dual EC called, it says 2009, but this is written like 2005 or something. This is a copy I obtained from 2009. Uh, extended random values for TLS. And basically, what this did is made the thing harder to exploit. So I mentioned the first, the bits were chopped off of the R values. So to reverse it, you need R. So basically, you just guess R. 
you, if it's four bits are chopped off, you have four, four R's to check. And then you just um, try for all four R's. And then if you could predict the next one, good, you predicted it. So among other things, this document, um, this was a technical specification. It decreased the number of bits. And nobody uh, looked twice at it, really. At this point, people are not really aware. So the two authors are Eric Roscola of RTFM, and that's his own company. He's authored many TLS specifications and stuff. He's a bureaucrat. He loves doing this. And then uh, Margaret Salter of the National Security Agency. So this was a, a joint work with the government and like the, a public corporation. Oops. So here's a, here's a section of the document. The United States Department of Defense has requested a TLS mode, which allows the use of longer public randomness values for use with higher security level cipher suites, like those specified in suite B, whatever. The rationale for this, as stated by the DOD, is that the public randomness for each side, each side should be at least twice as long as the security level for cryptographic parity, which makes the 224 bits of randomness provided the current TLS values insufficient. Does anyone know what the word cryptographic parity means? It means nothing. It's gibberish. It's garbage. It's total fake. They just made all this up. Uh, TLS is what you use when you connect to Amazon.com. You set up the lock right in the corner. So that's, this is part of what that extends into. 224 bits is nowhere near approachable uh, with supercomputers or anything. You know, every bit you add doubles the work that you have to do. 224 is like two to the 224. You know, try loops of you know it's impossible. We're at, we're at like the a supercomputer today could do like two to the 50. Right, and every bit you add is doubling it. So two to the 51 will happen in 10 years or whatever. Right? We're nowhere near 224 bits of insecurity. Those, this is gibberish. Right? So here's the two people who wrote the document. Eric Riscola, he is uh, now a Mozilla fellow. He's uh, basically has a vice presidential role. And then Margaret Salter, she worked at the NSA for 35 years, and then she moved to AWS recently, and that made news. You know, AWS poaches a national security uh, longtime person. That's like a big deal, I guess. I don't know kind of suspicious. You want to start thinking about things, right? Uh, who knows? Um, so some more history after this was, but before it was, uh, it's not leaked yet. People don't know it's a backdoor. Certicom is a company, they're acquired by BlackBerry now. They basically patent anything security related they can't. If you guys remember, do you guys, are you guys old enough to remember before people had iPhones that people had Blackberries? They, and people would talk about Blackberries, they're like secure. They're like the secure one, right, or something. And people didn't really know what that meant. The Certicom was like the security part. They patented all this stuff. So they filed a patent how to backdoor a random number generator. And then they filed a patent how to protect yourself from a backdoor random number generator. So they were selling a poison and then trying to sell an antidote. And um, the patent offices forwarded this to the NSA. And the NSA like, was like, well, we don't care. This is, who cares? So here's from, I dug this paragraph out of a 600 page PDF. In yet another respect, the present invention provides a method of backup functionality for an elliptic curve random number generator, the method compromising the steps of computing an escrow key E upon determination of a point Q of the elliptic curve, whereby P equals EQ. Seems familiar. Uh, P being another point of the elliptic curve. Instituting an administrator, having the administrator store the escrow key E, and having members with the elliptic curve random number generator, sending to the administrator an output R, generated before an output value of the generator. The administrator logging the output R for future determination of the state generator. So knowing E and R, they know everything. This is in a patent. This is in 2005. It was sitting there, it was sitting there in the public, in public information pool. Um, 2007, there's a crypto rump session. So crypto is a conference. They have a rump. It's called a rump session. Uh, basically, it's sort of it's like half jokes, talks, things that are not serious. Like in 2015, there was a talk in the rump session, and the guy just said the word blockchain for like 10 minutes. He didn't say any of your words. Sometimes there's like half serious. Sometimes they're sort of joking. 
There was one Sasha Boldireva was actually at this rum session in 2007, and she gave a talk, and I looked at the slides, and I don't know what she said, but one of the slides had like a facial recognition algorithm for another professor and Kermit the Frog, and it was like identifying. So it was like, a, this guy looks like Kermit the Frog. Or uh, so Dan Shumwell and Niels Ferguson, these are famous guys. Now they, they were working at Microsoft at the time. And they uh, reported to NIST in 2005, like, hey, this could be backdoored. Um, and then NIST like, shooed them away. They didn't care. Uh, recall NIST was allowing NSA, the NSA to respond on their behalf at this point. And, and the NIST response was the NSA response was like, there's absolutely no chance there's a backdoor. What are you talking about? So the crypto rump science, they present, present the bug. Basically, what we just did, where we did the, the math and we got to S2. Uh, and internally, this was a big deal at NIST because they thought, wait a minute, these are serious people. This is a serious conference, and now they're telling us our number random number generator is backdoored. So, uh, from the 25th, I think the slide's out of order, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the 2013 Snowden leaks, uh, we found this sticky note in a Google Doc, not a Google Doc, in a presentation internally, and you can see there's a thing that says SSL added and removed here, removed here. So backdooring the random number generator, it's not obvious how you can backdoor the entire security process, how you can see someone's password being transmitted over a secure channel. There was a paper in 2014 that detailed this in very good details by Matthew Green and some other cryptographers. Uh, this face became kind of famous because he's, kind of, he's kind of taunting you. He's kind of smirking at you. He's like, yeah, I has got your SSL. You know, fucker. Okay. Um, so this is the NIST cover of the publication. This was the 150-page document that included three random number generators and dual EC. Who's named on it? Who's responsible for this backdoor number generator? Well, there's two people, Elaine Barker and John Kelsey. Now, John Kelsey was the guy who the NSA gave this to this, and now his name is on the document. No one from the NSA's name is on the document. John Kelsey's name is on the document. And he has an alibi, and this is John Kelsey. So here's, obtaining a FOIA request, here's two internal comments from working drafts of that document. Okay, so here's a limit of my competence. Can Don or Dan or one of the NSA guys with some number theory, algebraic geometry background, please look over this, thanks. I'm really blowing smoke here. Would someone please, with actual understanding of these attacks, please save me from diving off a cliff right here? So this guy doesn't understand anything about like the curves, uh, or random generators maybe, but he's just sort of like trusting whatever they're saying. Uh, there's no algebraic geometry involved in elliptic curves. I mean, there is, but crypto takes all the boring parts of it. Like I didn't explain to you anything about algebraic geometry, but we understood enough about elliptic curve. This is like calculus. So the NSA maybe was hyping him up, saying this is real complicated, this is how it works, and he, he doesn't ask too many questions. So this is sort of a Homer Simpson defense, like legal defense. He's just sort of like, oh, and he doesn't know what's going on. And he doesn't, so he's in the clear. He's, do you think he's guilty? Did he put it in there? No. He looks like Peter Griffin, too. Okay, so here's another email. He starts asking questions around 2004, because this name is on document. So at the bottom it says, uh, subject mining or P's and Q's in dual EC to Don Johnson. Do you know where Q comes from in dually C DRGB? Thanks, John. And uh, uh, Don replies, P equals G. Q, in essence, is the public key for some random private key. It could also be generated like another canonical G, but NSA kiboshed this idea, and I was not allowed to publicly discuss it, in case you may think of going there. So this doesn't make any sense, talking about, uh, talking about Q as a random, uh, a random public key for some private key in the context, if you don't know there's a back door. And the concept of making a random, generator, random number generator doesn't make any sense. So this is hinting that something was done internally. This wasn't an accident. So here's the five people who worked on it. Uh, Don Johnson, Debbie Wallner, her name will come up again, so I bolded her. Bob Korkoska, Paul Timmel, and Mike Boyle. So I Googled all these people. Don Johnson, I added him on Facebook. Uh, he's a former head snitch at the NSA. That's his job. So I assume he's fired. Uh, 
and he's cutting wood or whatever old people do. I don't know. This is Mike Boyle, and uh, he gave a talk this uh, at the RSA conference in May this year, 2021. He's active in several open center efforts dedicated to their development. So, none of these people have any publications under the name besides NIST standards. So, and this is a, this is an NSA guy. He looks kind of scary. He looks like a general from a movie, All right? Um, so the back door is released. Snowden, we, we realized this was going on, and people started freaking out. Snowden revealed that they were adding this was backdoored. Uh, they, Snowden also revealed the RSA was paid to put the backdoor in. So as late as 2016, dual VC was still being used in the wild. You know, all these people using old Blackberries. I looked up all every uh, cryptographic library that was certified for dual VC, and some of them were like Windows 8.1, which is much newer than 2013, I think. Uh, Samsung SSL, whatever. Juniper was a company that was still using dual EC supposedly in a secure way. So they would make these random number generators and they would feed them into something else. And they would say, well, it doesn't matter this way. They bugged, uh, but they bugged the code. So they took the dual EC bad random numbers, fed them into something else. That something else never happened. They, like, the way the code worked was they, uh, like, instantiated all the objects and they never called it. So the compilers optimized it all out and was feeding in the bad random numbers. So these were bugs still still happening in the wild. I didn't know where to put this. Oh, that's the end of the story for dual EC. What time is it? Am I, am I running super over? I just want to make sure. Okay, I'll finish up quickly. Uh, so, oh yeah, what was it? What was it? Oh yeah, so uh, another thing we learned from the Snowden leaks was that AES was being attacked from the NSA, and we don't know what they did. Uh, we don't think there's anything serious they did. They were trying something called a tau statistic, which sounds spooky, but um, probably nothing serious. AES is like a gold standard for a cipher, so we don't really have any bugs for that. Uh, speaking of ciphers, there's, I'm going to talk quickly about two ciphers called Simon and Spec. So AES is a block cipher. It uses symmetric encryption. Uh, this is what one round of Simon uses. So there's like shifts and ands and XORs or whatever, and they're like, you do. 50 rounds of this, and then you say, that's my ciphertext. It's invertible, too. So you take the key and you invert it, right? Uh, basically all it is. So here's a paper called Simon and Spec Block Cyphers for the Internet of Things, published by these five guys from the NSA. Uh, it's kind of a weird document. None of them have published anything before. They're working in the NSA. Uh, so what's a design rationale? So what's the point? Why would you come up with a new cipher? AES seems good enough. There was no rationale provided initially, and then it was later provided. And then when this block cipher hit the internet, uh, there was uh, cryptanalysis was quickly published online by independent people. So they said it was a block cipher for IoT. So they said it's very fast. It's much better for an ARM chip uh, than AES is. Who knows why? Um, in constrained environments where AES not be, may not be suitable. It's three times faster than AES, but how much less secure is it? So here's the introduction. I'm not going to read it. They're just talking about birds or something. Like you can see the word Kirkland's wobbler, a bird, and they make some analogy. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, it's total gibberish. I was going to do some detailed talk about the cryptanalysis of a block cipher, but I don't care enough, and I delete those slides. Let's just say it sucks. It, it's bad. It's a bad block cipher. People broke it. There's papers and papers and papers saying this is bad. You know, if the cipher is bad, what you can do is increase the rounds. So I think AES uses like 14 or 17 rounds. This was using like 50, and then an attack came out, and they're like, fine, we'll bump it to 53 rounds, and then, yeah. So they wanted it standardized. So they uh, they went to an international standardization body and said, let's standardize this. And you know, 
computer scientists are really good about getting funding for all these conferences where they have to travel internationally and buy expensive plane tickets. So there was all these meetings in these eight cities over many months. Three years it took to standardize. Imagine being on the standardization committee and getting to go to all these cities, right, paid to do bureaucratic work. Um, so there was Tom Asher, he was represented from the Netherlands. So every country involved in the standardization sent their national expert. Tom Asher was from the Netherlands. Uh, not mentioned the meeting summary is a discussion that was held about passing on the NSA and sabotaging cryptic standards, for example, Dooley C. One of the NSA experts, Debbie Waldner, who was also involved in standardization of Dooley C, referred to it as the elephant in the room and claimed they had apologized for it. It's time to move on. So that's his comment. And then he left a very detailed uh, reply in a Linux kernel mailing list where somebody tried to commit Simon and Speck to the Linux kernel. Um, I'm going to just kind of not read it. I, I thought I was going to read it, but I don't feel like it. I'm still waiting for email confirmation, but the public I made a bet with Louis Wingers during ISO meeting 11. So basically, there won't be any more attacks. I made a bet with him. And then she won the bet. So she won $300. Tanya Lange is a cryptographer out of Germany somewhere? I don't remember. She's an important figure. 300 USD. If I win more than three rounds of assignment spec or any proposed parameters broken by anybody, attack must be online by blah, blah, blah. So she won. Um, yeah, so here's the last thing I'll read. So these people got a first-hand impression of how poorly the people in the NSA sent fair with technical questions, basically refusing to answer at all and throwing tantrums instead. And then the ISO people also saw another thing. During the discussion, I asked the NSA two non-technical questions. From a crypto viewpoint, there are technical questions from a standardization viewpoint. You claim third-party analysis is indicative of the algorithm's real security. Were you aware of all these results when you published the algorithms or when any of these people knew of? I refuse to answer. Are you aware of any cryptanalytic results better than those already found by academia? I refuse to answer. So imagine if you're in a research, you're publishing in a journal or something, and somebody asks you a detailed question, and you say, I refuse to answer, instead of saying, I don't know, or, or something. It's kind of scary. Um, so the Israeli delegate said, I don't trust the designers. This is from an article by Reuters. There are quite a few people at the NSA who think their job is to subvert standards. My job is to secure standards. So they gave the NSA a fair shot, and eventually it was not standardized by a single vote. So Simon and Speck are now not on all your phones and not running Linux because of this. Uh, here's from the, the patch to remove it from the kernel in 4-20. It was officially decided not to allow Android devices to use Speck. We found it very serious, and that links to this. These are unused, undesired, and have never actually been used by anybody. Original authors of this code have changed their mind about its inclusion, so they deleted it. That's what this commit is from the Linux kernel. So here's the five people who, uh, the six people who worked on uh, Simon and Speck, the two block ciphers. This guy, Adam on LinkedIn, he had a degree in math from somewhere. These guys have never published anything on block ciphers. They've never done any work on block ciphers. Doesn't mean they can't make a good block cipher, but it just means it just shows an experience in trying to get it standardized immediately. I don't know why that slide is blank. Post quantum crypto. This is where we are today. So basically, quantum computers can break some things. Like I talked about, they can break ECDLP. They can discrete, uh, break discrete log. So the NSA, the NIST is trying to standardize today post quantum crypto algorithms. And if you hang around the reading, uh, the mailing list, you can see some terrible emails. Oh, this is the only cool thing Trump did is he, there's an office of the White House. They have a, if you, you guys have seen a brockhead in a quantum notation before? This is like quantum, like a, like a bra and a kit, or whatever. Okay, here's from the mailing list. And this is how people talk to each other in a public forum. Hi, Dan, this quote is nuts. Apparently everyone but you understand the state of the science is willing to accept new results as they happen. Stop propagandizing. I got this email on a mailing list of professionals at like four in the morning, I woke up, saw my phone, and I went back to bed. Uh, and so this is just Daniel Bernstein, the one that we've talked about like four times already. He filed a public 17-page report against Daniel Appon. 
whatever these guys are doing. Okay? So here's some of the third round finalists. They're based on different hardness problems besides the, one, the ones we think are uh, resistant to a quantum computer. And then here's the ones for uh, signatures. The interesting one is Picnic, which is worked on by Vlad Klesnikov. He's a professor here. Uh, the signature is basically zero, non-interactive, zero-knowledge, proof-of-knowledge of the secret key. And I'm not going to explain what that is. Basically, so the NSA comes out with their own opinions about what is our opinion on the standardization process. Uh, what are they going to standardize as round three finalists? And basically they say, we're going to choose a lattice hardness problem, and we're going to say, alternatively, we can choose a hash-based problem. And then I emailed the authors of this. Okay, what did they think about this? And you know, who, who do you take the word for? Is it are they saying we want these to be insecure, or are they trying to secure themselves? I have no idea. And what if they're faking it double, or you know, it's 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 hard to. I have no idea. So here's my best guesses. They also want to secure themselves from quantum adversaries. They're not going to be the first one with a quantum computer. They have an 80 million dollar budget for a quantum computer. Uh, I don't understand lattices, but I don't understand codes either. And I like hash functions and block ciphers. So maybe some future lattice theorem seems easier. Sphinx plus is a hash is a, is a signature um, based on hash functions. Maybe it's easy to misconfigure. Like you can change the random number generator in your protocol. Maybe you can change the hash function. I emailed the guy and he said uh, the authors of Sphinx plus and they said even if you change the hash function MD5, which is a terrible and broken hash function, but it's still included in all your things, um, we would still re reach level one instead of level three of security. So it's still pretty good. Um, closing thoughts: Who's winning? Cryptographers, or the NSA. Well, all of these points, cryptographers, cryptographers won. So I think we're winning. But if the NSA won something, we wouldn't know. They wouldn't tell us. So I have no idea. I gave you lots of names of people. So why did I do that? Why Wasn't that kind of creepy? I just listed off people's private photo, and I was showing you this guy's dumb smile and whatever. So I showed you this photo at the beginning. And this, this is the, I mentioned the budget. And this is a terrifying photo. It's sort of a conglomerate. It's, there's a billions in, in funding, and they're scary looking. And who knows what science they're developing. But this is just people like you and me where we can do the same thing. So this is the people, I took all their photos on the internet. I added all of them on Facebook or LinkedIn. Uh, they're just a bunch of dorks, right? It's not a scary conglomerate. It's just a bunch of dudes having fun. They're not really doing a good job either. So there's nothing to be scared of. It's not that creepy. Uh, and if you need a second point of uh, help, there's a document written by Philip Rogway, who's a famous cryptographer. The NSA tried to influence the NSF into denying him a research award early in his career. And after the Snowden leaks, he wrote this document called The Moral Character of Cryptographic Work. It's an excellent work in ethics. If you haven't read it, it's 48 pages. It's got a lot of footnotes. It's very detailed. It's not cryptographic in nature. Seriously, it's more it's like philosophical and ethical. I recommend you read it. If I was teaching a crypto course, this would be the required reading for every first semester. I think that's everything. Oh, here's all my links. I don't know why they were in yellow. I couldn't get them to change. But I'm sure my slides will be up and you can click on all those. And all of those are like 600 page PDFs where you can dig into more details about everything I talked about. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Want more stock market secrets? If so, go get your free copy of my best selling book, Nine to Noon. You can get your free copy plus $11,176 of unannounced bonuses. It took me years to uncover completely for free at 9tonoonsecrets.com. Inside 9 to Noon, you'll find the top 38 secrets you can use to double your portfolio every two years and make upwards of 10% per trade daily.